Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 199 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff. I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Woohoo! We are almost at episode 200. Can you believe it? That is fun. And I am so excited because next week's going to be an awesome week on the podcast. We have some bonus episodes. We also have a huge giveaway uh, that you're going to enjoy. Just a little something to make your day a bit brighter. If you're a regular listener, you've been here for a while, you probably can figure out what we're going to do. Uh, I'll, I'll just tell you, we're going to give you free coffee every day for a week and uh, the most we've ever given away. So how does that sound? Uh, that's to thank you, the listener who makes this podcast what it is. Thank you for subscribing. If you haven't done that, please do that. We uh, It's free. And I only listen to the podcasts I subscribe to. That's very, very true. <laughs> when I go out for a ride or to do some yard work or whatever, I just check my feed and away I go. So if you love this, make sure you subscribe. Thank you for sharing it with friends. Thank you for doing uh, social media shares on this. You guys make it awesome. That's why next week is Give Back Week for our 200th episode. My guest is Josh Gagnon next week. Uh, he leads one of the fastest growing, just rapidly expanding churches on the East Coast in New England and now in Florida. We talk all about that. And today, my guest is John Dickerson. Now, John has uh, written for the New York Times, CNN, USA Today, and just recently as a 35-year-old, he took over a mega church, and he talks all about that and I can't wait for you to hear about that. It's what journalism can teach leaders, uh, the massive changing culture, and what he even noticed as a journalist and how the church can respond. So that's the subject today. Uh, also, I, I want to let you know, uh, thank you to everybody who was so supportive on the launch of The Art of Better Preaching. Um, man, it is exciting to be able to help so many leaders. Now, a lot of you are asking, hey, is the course still available or did it close? No, it's absolutely available. And we actually introduced a payment plan. So for those of you who are like, uh, you know, I haven't got the course money up front, go check it out. Uh, theartofbetterpreaching.com, or maybe you just want to spread it out over a few months. We can do that now. So head on over to theartofbetterpreaching.com. Uh, we will help you along with so many other leaders. Really elevate your preaching to the best that you can be. It's a course that Mark Clark and I did, and that's at theartofbetterpreaching.com. Man, I'm so excited to tell you about some new things with one of our longtime partners here on the podcast, Trained Up. They have spent the last few months just improving their platform. It was already great. They've made it so much better and so much more to serve the church as you try to train leaders. Do you know that research says that training meetings typically get a 60% attendance rate on average. Well, Trained Up is actually able to get your training of your volunteers up to 100%. First of all, that's a nice to have. Like you want everyone to be on vision and mission. But honestly, when it comes to like kids ministry and safety, it's a need to have. So move your training ratio up to 100%. Uh, there are hundreds of churches deciding it's the right platform to help them train their church like never before. You can go to trainedup.church for more information on Trained Up services and use the coupon code CAREY, C-A-R-E-Y, for 10% off of your service for life. So here's a few new features they've been working on, Scott and the team. They've got password-free logins. So in other words, when you're sending your people there, they don't like, ah, what's my password? I quit. Nope. Done. Solved. How about this? Um, something called ministry areas so that you can organize your volunteers and leaders into groups like greeters, kids ministry, etc. So that makes it easier for your team 
custom branding. Some of you are going to love this. So what it means is that you can actually put your own logo on the Trained Up account so they know, hey, this is like my church. They're able to do all of that. More changes. Tracks are a brand new feature that let you automate the training process. So each new learner receives courses in the order you set up based on their ministry area. Set it up once. Trained Up takes care of everything else. There's over 600 videos now pre-made on volunteers, leadership, Bible training. Uh, So you don't have to do all the work yourself, but if you want to, you can. There's webcam recording. Um, Leaders now upload over 6,000 minutes of training a month using only their webcam. So it's super simple. You don't need a lot of kit. And now there's over 20,000 people who've been trained using Trained Up. On checkout, use the coupon code CAREY, C-A-R-E-Y, 10% off of your service for life. So you'll definitely want to get over and check that out. And in the meantime, we're going to leave the 100s, episode 199, John Dickerson on what journalism can teach leaders and so much more. Well, John, welcome to the podcast. You are John S. Dickerson. You were telling me why that is important. And I guess anybody who watches CBS might know. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I've got a, a good friend named John Dickerson, who is a political director over at CBS News. And he's a well-known journalist. So coming from the world of journalism, the name John Dickerson was already taken. So I had to put my <laughs> middle initial in there, John S. Dickerson. That's awesome. Okay. And you actually were a journalist turned pastor, which is not a, you know, I've met one or two other lawyers turned pastors or pastors turned lawyers. And like you've written for CNN, for the New York Times, USA Today has featured your stuff, many, many more. Um, I'd love to start there. What got you into journalism? Yeah. So, you know, I always enjoyed writing as a kid, always had a little bit of a nerdy streak. And honestly, once God got a hold of my heart and I started studying the Bible, when I went to college and thought, what do I major in? And realized God chose the by bi- of, of any way he could communicate to humanity in an unchanging form. He chose the written word, if that makes sense. It you does. know, there's creation, there's all these other expressions, but the, the only really objective, non-changing communication was the written word. So really, I, I started out in journalism just to learn to be a better writer and then started doing that as a career. Uh, It was an incredible career because one day I'd be profiling a heroin addict and the next I might be profiling a billionaire or a professional athlete. And so really got to see the whole spectrum of humanity from the very bottom to the very top. And in all of it, saw that what scripture says about human nature and the human need is true and accurate. Not only that, saw that the message of Jesus is really the only message that can change the world because it's the only message that can change the human heart. Um, Mm -hmm. I met a a lot of really well-intentioned lawmakers who hoped to change society from the outside in through, you know, rules and regulations. And that's an important field. And as an investigative reporter, that was the thrust of a lot of my work was trying to help lawmakers adjust where we need to have better laws. But ultimately, I saw over the years of doing that, you can't change people from the outside in, but Jesus' message truly does change people from the inside out. You know, it's interesting. As a former lawyer, I, I had exactly the same thought pattern, that laws try to change from the outside in. If you want to change the world, uh, you go after the heart. Because if you change people from the inside out, you know, internally imposed rules 
uh, tend to stick around a lot longer than externally posed <laughs> rules. And they're self-checking, they're self-policing. Fascinating. That's right. How how do you? I mean, you you've you've written and been featured in some major, like the you know the top of the game, um, CNN, New York Times, USA Today. How does one go about ending up on those channels? I mean, you're not that old. You're not sixty. You know, you're not like oh, I've just been around for forty years, and therefore eventually, you know how 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 did you get there? How how does that happen? I, I think in my case, just by God's grace, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't think I um, uh, was that smart. You know, I started small and I think this is an interesting principle for any domain, no matter what field as you're listening to this mm. as a leader. When I finished my undergrad, the newspaper I started writing for was called the Scottsdale Times in Scottsdale, Arizona. It was right. tiny it was monthly publication. It was not a big deal. But because it was such a small publication, I got to do a little bit of everything. And I got to do some investigative stories that if I had tried to go straight to a big name news outlet, they never would have let a 21-year-old do. And I got to do profiles. You know, I'd reach out to well-known people who lived in the area and I'd get to eventually, you know, if you ask 10 of them, one of them will agree to do a profile. Yeah. So you get to profile someone kind of famous and started out that way. And because I was at a smaller publication, I got to do some of those things. They started to earn awards at the state level and then just kind of moved up through the ranks. But uh, not to skip ahead, but in my career now as a pastor was a similar trajectory. I started at a church of 40 people and learned kind of how to do every, not everything, but you know, had to do everything. Uh, and I think it's a really neat principle. It's one I want my kids to get when they launch out into the world that you don't have to start at, quote, the top of any one industry. Sometimes it's really helpful to be almost a sole proprietor of yeah. something a little bit smaller and learn the basics, learn the essentials. Um, so anyhow, I, I really still don't know how it all ended up that way. Somewhere along the way, I ended up, um, God allowed me to win this journalism prize called the Livingston Award for Young Journalists. And Tom Brokaw, Charles Gibson from ABC News, a bunch of these big name people give it out. So that was a, a key moment hmm. in my life um, where I was sitting in the Yale Club in Manhattan next to Charles Gibson from ABC News. Younger listeners won't know who that is, but yeah. he was kind of like the Anderson Cooper of a previous generation for ABC right. News. And that's right when God was stirring in my heart that the church is the greatest hope for changing the world. And I was explaining to him that I was walking away from my journalism career. And he, he in a very polite way, more or less said, why would you waste the skill you've been given on the church. And I remember it just being this key moment of me really seeing the highest I could go in that field and sitting next to the people who are the highest of it and having seen enough of the world to know lives change through the power of Jesus. And it's something mm -hmm. I still have to remind myself, writing books, et cetera. God uses books, God uses media, but ultimately it's just the raw power of Jesus' message when it connects to the human heart. That's the hope of the world. That's the hope of nations. You know, that's interesting because we have church leaders, lots of church leaders and some business leaders here. And that conversation that you had with that seasoned journalist 
is almost a direct parallel to one that I had with the managing partner of my law firm in Toronto when I told him I was leaving to go into ministry. And he knew that from the beginning, but like after a year, it was a very successful year. He pulled me aside. He's like, you're, n- you're not actually doing that, right? Like, and it was the exact same mindset. And it's yeah. funny, I talked to him for the first time in 20 years earlier this year because I told a story about him in the book. And my publisher's like, you got to get his permission. I'm like, I haven't talked to him in 20 years. So I called him and we were reminiscing and it, it was great. It was fantastic. It was good to reconnect with him. Um, he still doesn't get it. He's like, yeah. you could have been a great lawyer. And and I wonder, you know, that mindset, have you seen that now that you're pastoring on the other side, now that you're on the other side? Do you see that mindset at work sometimes in the church that when you have skill that you could apply in running your own business and, uh, you know, being in journalism and law and finance, wherever it happens to be, that to apply that skill set to the church world just seems to be weird to a lot of people in business? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's two sides to the coin because the one side is we so need Christians in those industries. And that to me was, that was the heartbreaking thing when God called me out of journalism was you know, every newsroom that I was in, I was the only real Christian, you know, sure. and, I, and I was at a leading edge of culture where Christianity is just completely absent. It's not that they hate Christians. They just don't even think about it. They don't even yeah. think about the church, you know, and, and so on the one hand, um, I am so thankful for every Christian who is called to represent Christ in those places that I don't get to go to anymore because, mm. or at least not as often. Um, so I, that's one side of it. The other side of it is for those of you who are listening, who are leading in the church, I would encourage you don't lose your perspective of how important what you're doing is. Uh, there will be a day a hundred years from now when we'll be in the next life and we will look back and we'll see what things mattered and what things didn't matter. And all the titles of this world and all the material wealth will be stripped away and we'll see what mattered. And you who are serving Christ, whether it's in your workplace or in ministry, uh, the time will come when the veil will be lifted and everyone will see what mattered and what didn't matter. And I, I think that's one of the challenges now with pastors, because sometimes they'll um, think, boy, you know, wouldn't it be great to have more influence in these halls of power? And if God calls you mm. to that, absolutely. But the influence for the kingdom of God is the influence that's eternal. And when you look at Jesus' life, he he wasn't often in the halls of power. But look at the fruit that remains from him doing the Father's will on earth. You said something really interesting. You said that when it comes to journalism in the higher corridors of power, um, they don't even think about Christians. I think you, you talk to a lot of church leaders, they feel like the number one challenge from the culture is persecution or rejection. Others would say it's indifference, like, oh, you guys are still around, like for real? What what was your experience of that? What's your take on that? So I'd say a little bit of each. On the personal level, I definitely experienced, you know, especially when I went into the, the most liberal newsroom that I was in, I went in knowing, okay, you know, if people find out I'm an evangelical Christian, they're, they're not going to love that. Mm. What really surprised me is in their mind, it was the equivalent of um, like a cult or... Um, 
yeah, like a fringe cult or like a snake handler. I mean, mm. in in their mind, it was very, how could anyone intelligent believe that? Right. Uh, so there's a little bit of an intellectual persecution there. I, I don't think the hostility, you know, perhaps in the supernatural realm, but I think at the human level, I don't think there's this, we want to kill the Christians kind of thing. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. more of an intellectual antagonism. And I think for, I think it's a little of each in the sense there is antagonism at that level. And then there is very much a world they live in where there just aren't a lot of Bible believing Christians, at least not who are it all open about their faith. Mm-hmm. And so it's just completely off radar. And indifferent in that sense of almost just, um, you know, we've moved. It, it is a groupthink bubble in a sense, and Christianity is just missing from their conversation. What um, what in journalism prepared you for ministry? Yeah, great, great question, Carrie. I I think I, I'm going to say a few things here. <laughs> one yeah. is one is storytelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am so thankful that I spent about five years of my life being a professional storyteller because uh, now as a, as a leader and as a communicator, um, and anytime I'm preparing content, my brain kind of defaults to what's the lead, what's the hook, what's the summary, don't use weak passive verbs, use active verbs, who's the character, what's, don't use that, it's a cliche. So you know, the art of storytelling and the discipline of not telling stories in a lazy fashion, I I miss that. I miss being pushed and challenged every day by really great editors about that. But hopefully I've retained some of it. Uh, I think another thing that prepared me was sitting in a really large church as a lay person who was successful in a career and just seeing church from that side um, and now that I'm on the other side of that glass um, or that partition, if you will, uh, aware that I've got pretty big blind spots. There's a lot of really good ideas about what should be done that I won't think of now because I'm insulated. I'm in the group think bubble now mm. of church leadership. Um, being in journalism was also great preparation in the sense that you know, you could be the biggest deal in the church and ministry world, and nobody at the leading edges of American culture right now cares who you are. Or and even so, knows your name. Exactly. And so I think when you when you taste that and when you really see it, there's a humility that results that's not really a humility of chosen character, but it's just a humility of waking up to reality that Christianity and churches are entirely missing from the conversation in, in most of the newsrooms, boardrooms, and classrooms that are shaping American culture today. Mm, man, there's so much there. Uh, storytelling. The lead, the hook, um, and laziness. Those were three of the lists that you kind of rhymed off. Uh, a lot of people listening, a lot of leaders listening right now have to prepare a message every weekend. What's the lead? What's the hook? What is lazy storytelling? Oh, man. Yeah, we should do a whole session on this. I know. This is know, like, well, hmm, I'm, interesting. I'm constantly learning. But, you know, lazy storytelling is when you fall into cliches. Uh, it could be a cliche story that's been told many times, or it could be telling a story that's a good story, but with cliche, lazy language. So example. So in my mind, and here's what's different from journalism to ministry. In, in ministry, at least with what my role is, 
my calling is to engage the word of God to a person's life, which has to engage their emotions. So you could, I could tell a story in a way that here's the facts, you know, Let, let's take, here's one I'm kind of working on. Uh, the guys who started Adidas and Puma were brothers, Rudolph and Adi Dossler, and they had a fight and the two of them had a falling out and they literally set up shops on opposite sides of this river in Germany. And so Adi Dossler named his company Adidas and Rudolf Dossler named his company Puma. And for 40 some years, these brothers were arch rivals working against each other, driven to beat each other and drove their brands to success. And as a result, never made up, never talked to each other again for the rest of their lives and died as arch enemies somewhere in the 60s or so. Who knew? I had no idea. (laughs) So that's a story, you know, I could tell it the way I just told it to you. And it's interesting. And that works in news. For what I'm called to do now, I have to engage the listener's emotions about where there is broken relationship or animosity or jealousy or injustice in their life. And I need to bring that story in in a way that they connect with and somehow at the end turn it to, you know, what if one of them had just sent one messenger across the river to say, hey, um, I want to reconnect with you. And that's what God has done for us. That's what, you know, that's what Jesus did for us. So I've got that one in my folder, but I haven't told it yet from the stage because I don't feel like I've emotionally engaged it enough yet. Um, I'm a bit of a perfectionist, so I'll probably work it to death. But the thing is, um, late, I'm probably preaching to myself here, but I have a, a lot of laziness in my thinking and even in my the way I put words together and the way I tell stories that I have to force myself to use the active verb instead of the passive verb. I'm going to get really nerdy on. (laughs) Except, except, yeah, yeah. I mean, hey, if you do your exegesis right, the divine (laughs) passive, I mean, you shouldn't eliminate the divine (laughs) passive. When the actor is silent in scripture, just if you're wondering, what are they talking about? It's usually a reference to God. It's a Hebrew technique. But anyway, that's uh, that's enough Old Testament, New Testament exegesis for now. Um, so, so yeah, uh, and, and you know what? I use Grammarly, and it alerts me, like, to the passive tense. So, um, you know, uh, the room was dark. No, that's not a good... Give me an example. You, you, you're the journalist. Yeah, so passive is any time that you take the actor out of the sentence, more or less. And so, you know, I have a hard time thinking of one, because I've... Yeah, I've, I know. I'm, I'm scratching my brain, too. So, um, the people were disappointed by the announcement. Is that <laughs> yeah, it? Yeah, there you go. Yeah, okay. yeah. And the, the active would be the announcement failed or the announcement disappointed the people. But right. when I used to have journalism interns from Arizona State University, I, I literally had a passive verb jar. And anytime, <laughs> anytime I found a passive verb in their stories, they had to pay me money for passive verb. Oh. But, so I've, I've literally, you know, for the most, I've tried to pound them out of my mind. But anyhow, I'm getting in the weeds here and kind of uh, no, no, no. This is good. Lead and hook, lead and hook. Okay, this is. Good. I mean, yeah. we, we, there's a lot of writers. I mean, every single and all leaders are communicators at some level, and we bore people to death. It's like the church annual report. You know, that's something I realized a decade ago. It's like nobody cares. I care. I'm the only one. And tell a story that people are interested in. Carrie, so we've got seven goals. I'm, I'm in a brand new role, but for mm-hmm. our staff, our leaders, we prayed over seven goals for the first year. And the first goal is to show and tell compelling stories of how God is at work. 
And mm. so I just came from a staff meeting. We spent the whole hour. We didn't do anything tactical. We just, we told stories, passed the microphone around with 60 or 70 staff who were there and just one story after another of people whose lives are changing, families who are new to the ministry, ways that the movement is affecting the community. And it, it's starting to spread through the DNA of our of our staff culture. And it's just so fun to see because all these things were already happening. We just weren't in the habit of telling the stories. Okay, so is that like the lead or the hook? <laughs> if I'm, I'm, I'm stuck on this, or I'm not going to let you go any further. I just, I got to figure this out. Because I know that, you know, they talk in journalism about burying the lead. Yes. Right? Okay, all right. Okay, so here. The, the lead, oh, let's, let's say the hook. Okay, the hook okay, is, the hook. There, there's, sorry, there's two different ways you can do it in journalism. There's long form and short form. In okay. short form, which is the old school print journalism, you've got a four or 500 word article. Your lead is your first sentence or two. Um, You know, the dog bit the man. The man bit the dog is actually the story, right? right? The man bit the dog, sentence one. Now, if it's long form journalism, you start with um, a scene. Uh, This would be more of what's called a hook. And that's just one or two paragraphs about, um, and that's where the art of storytelling really comes in. So you it's know, like it was an ordinary day. The sun was shining. He was walking down the road when suddenly his leg went missing. I don't know. I don't know. Right, right. Like yeah, that? yeah. That's a terrible right. story. Well, except... <laughs> so, you know, this guy is out at night and this dog jumps on him and the man bites the dog. So the dog biting the man. Right. With... with so you can use a hook where you're not burying the lead, but you're building up to the lead. Now, mm-hmm. where the where the crossover is in public communication or like in preaching, uh, sometimes it's great to start off. There's a lot of great classic, classic communicators to start with. I'd like to talk with you today about mm-hmm. winning at the game of life or it's that. And, and so, boom, there it is. It's not a buried lead. It's right there. If you're going to take more of a Andy Stanley type approach where you're going to build some tension, create some curiosity, tap into a universal need or a universal dilemma. You use that time to get everyone feeling the same thing, wondering the same thing, and then essentially asking the same question. How can you win at the game of life when you've been So that would be the hook. The hook is the the why. Okay, gotcha. You know, and John Acuff was on this podcast a few months ago. And I mean, John speaks for a living professional communicator. He challenged all of us. And I took him up on it to stop saying, well, good morning. It's good to have you, you know, joining our campuses today and blah, blah, blah. We're in part eight of a 79 part series, you know, blah, blah, blah. He's like, you've blown the first three to five minutes and you've Mm -hmm. lost everybody in the room. Just start. Yes. And would you agree? What are your thoughts? I completely agree. I mean, I listened mm. to messages of mine from four or five years ago. I was just wandering around in circles up there, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I yeah. I worked with a, a guy out in California named Chip Ingram for uh, about three years as his yeah. teaching pastor. And Chip would challenge me on that. So I had from journalism, I had the mentality of I've got to hook them. And then I'm going to get to the lead, which is the big idea from scripture. And then, of course, you develop it. Um, and Chip, you know, he spent the first six months telling me, John, you took 10 minutes to do what you could have done in three. And it took me about two years to, to get there. I'm still not there. I've got a long ways right. to go. But his coaching and editing me 
really pushed me on that. And I've, now I've had some times where I realize, wow, in three minutes I did get them there. And the, the dream, the prayer is to get them there intellectually and emotionally to where they're feeling the tension and they want to know how do you win it? You know, if, if the question is how do you win at the game of life when you've been dealt a, a bad card, they're thinking about their cancer or their loss uh, in their life, their pain, and they really want to know the answer. And then we're able to open the word of God and 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 show them God's answer. So um, I guess the reason I use that word lazy is I am aware right now that no matter how hard I work at this at age 35, I've got a long, long ways to go. <laughs> uh, that's good to know. Uh, anything else from journalism that you would say really helped prepare you for ministry? I, you know, Carrie, I alluded to it before, but really just seeing the spectrum of humanity. Um, there's certain, certain scenes and settings that emotionally I can tap back into, whether it's walking the trails in the Arizona desert where hundreds of migrants die every year trying to get into the country, sitting with a family in a living room because they accidentally backed over their own kid with their SUV. Uh, just, you know, these heartbreaking scenarios um, and and seeing in all of it, people just need Jesus so desperately. And yeah. uh, it's probably not the exciting answer. It almost sounds like a cliche to say it, but really that was the biggest Journalism allowed me to see, you know, what life is like for every strata of humanity out there from the homeless to truly the one percenters. I mean, I interviewed lots of people who were not just millionaires, but actual billionaires, you know, and they've got the the dozens of collector cars, dozens of estate properties, the private jets. They own the hotels that they stay in and they just have the exact same problems as the homeless people. Isn't that interesting? What, what are just top of mind, a couple of those problems that in your mind are universal? Uh, broken relationships, lack of contentment, addiction, emptiness, um, going after what you think will make you satisfied and then it doesn't satisfy. Pretty much the book of Ecclesiastes. <laughs> <laughs> I love Ecclesiastes. I got a whole chapter on Ecclesiastes in my book that comes out in September. Uh, didn't see it coming. And it's about emptiness. It's about, that's one of the sections is just, wow. And that is a universal human condition, isn't it? Wow. Oh, absolutely. Do, do you think, I mean, you're sitting in an office, you now, you're six months into being the lead pastor of a church of 4,000 attenders, 8,000 people call your church home. You can like seal yourself off in a bubble, just deal with your senior staff, your elders, your stakeholders, and miss that. What are some keys for those of us who lead anything to making sure we stay in touch with human, the human condition? Oh, that's so good. That's such a good question. How do we stay in touch with the real human condition? I, I, I think having friends who aren't Christians yeah. is important when you are in full-time ministry. Um, I think having recurring settings, so for me it's when I exercise, but times where you're 
really engaging um, in in an ongoing way with people who don't know Christ and who don't really care about about our paradigm. Um, I think it's staying honest with ourselves and with our even neighbors just in proximity about, you know, what our struggles actually are. Um, I think if we're honest, we all still have real human needs that, you know, no matter how much. Never go away. (laughs) (laughs) They just kind of change. Yeah. Yeah. And if yeah. we don't if we don't stay in touch with those for ourselves, you know, we become I don't know what we'd become, but it wouldn't be real. Whatever we'd be doing wouldn't be real. Right. Well, you you have led very small churches. You said forty now, four thousand, and teaching pastor on a large church staff. Um, and you just became the successor to a very successful pastor who had been there for decades, extremely well-loved, extremely well-respected, and you went through a transition. Now, that's a theme we seem to be coming back to again and again on the podcast. It is a decade. Uh, I think it is a decade of transition coming up in church world, but um, and it's already started. Just real quick, a couple of things that went really well in that transition. You're six months into it. Yeah, by God's grace, it's it's been an incredible transition. Uh, all of our all of our metrics here have, have been really strong. Uh, so we're thankful for that. I think the big wins, the credit goes to the former lead pastor. He did something that I think was a great balance of control versus trust. And that is mm. he controlled the group who would select his successor. So I'll say it again. He picked the people who would choose the next pastor. And then he trusted them to do it. So he did have control in who those people were. And he picked very good people who understood the DNA and the values of the organization. But then he chose to trust them, knowing that it would be very emotional, knowing that it would be a grueling search process. He really defaulted to their selection. I think that was incredibly wise on his part. The executive pastors who led the church during the year of transition, set the staff up incredibly well, set the congregation up incredibly well. The elders, uh, elder board here had just a a spirit of genuine unity and excitement and anticipation. Uh, So those are all things I can't take any credit for. Um, On the side, you know, speaking to other other people who are listening who may be coming in as a successor, in any yeah. industry. I think, um, I'm sure I'm making mistakes that I'm not aware of, but <laughs> I, I think, well, here's a mistake I had seen some of my peers make, and that is they'll go into an established church as a young guy and think, I've got all these new, fresh, innovative ideas, and so they start making changes right away, and they can tip the thing over. Um, right. They forget that it's a flock and we're called shepherds, uh, and we're actually, you know, I have to remind myself of this because leader leadership um, in the American paradigm isn't always the same as it is in Scripture. And the word that God uses more than any other for his leaders in Scripture is shepherd. 
um, a shepherd is aware of the flock and you, and I can't expect to come in and be here a few months and actually know the flock. Sure. I could have read some books, have some ideas from some other people of what worked in their ministries and say, we're going to do this or that. But if I'm not actually aware of my flock, I'm not actually leading them as a shepherd. So I have seen some young guys go into older established churches and just right away start making rapid changes and actually scatter the flock and lose mm. lose the core of people who are actually why there's a job there in the first place to even yeah. have. And so instead to go in, uh, and the way I did it is I just, I kind of vowed to the leaders, my leadership team here, hey, in the first year, it's not that we won't make any changes, but first year, we're not going to make any major changes. We're going to get to know the lay of the land, and we're going to show our people through our uh, actions that we love them and that we're trustworthy. And um, so I think for for successors, and it, that might have some translation into other industries as well, if you're brand new on the scene and you've got a staff that doesn't yet know you, 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 if you, if I think they're going to just trust me right away because I'm cool or neat or sound good, I'm fooling myself. I'm going to have to earn their trust and that's going to take time. And I'm going to need all of them on my team for us to be successful down the road. The last thing on that, as far as, um, healthy transitions go is I'd say just the mutual respect so my predecessor, his name is Steve Reeves. He was here for 32 years. And he's just this incredible man of God who loves people. And that's the DNA of this church is loving people. And the whole community knows it. If anyone's hurting, they know this is the place to come. He just did an incredible job. And we had a mm -hmm. Sunday or a weekend where he literally handed the baton to me. And I can't imagine for him after 32 years how emotional that must have been. Um, he gave me his blessing publicly. Uh, he has praised me publicly and I've been privileged to have him back as a speaker and praise him publicly. And I think for our people that has been, that's just been huge. And I'd wow. say to anyone on either side of a succession, if you can do that, uh, and Steve and I have lunch once a month, we're able to get up there and with complete authenticity, praise each other, cheer each other on. Uh, I think that has has reaped dividends for our people beyond what we can really calculate or count. Does it create tension inside you not to introduce any big changes within that first year? I mean, I understand you're six months into it as we're recording this conversation, but is that a battle where you've just got to like bite your tongue or put your foot on the brake? Yeah, so well, you you do start to worry, uh, wonder what's the definition of big, you know, <laughs> I said, I'm not going to make any, I said, I'm not going to make any big, I said no big ones. what's the definition of big, but it's big, you know, I, I think the biblical parallel is Nehemiah. When Nehemiah, God calls him, he shows up and he actually sneaks out at night to survey where the wall has fallen down. And he, you know, he's not being, he's not being like deceptive or anything but he's just taken it all in. And I think there's some wisdom there in Nehemiah's example of, hey, you know what? This place was running fine before I got here. Um, so why don't I show up and look around? I kind of think of it as an aircraft carrier. You know, I, I need to understand how this whole thing operates before I move the wheel in any direction away from where it's already headed. 
Hmm. Yeah, there's some wisdom in that. Well, I want to shift gears a little bit. Um, this is um, a little bit with your journalism background. You have a heart for what's happening in the wider church as well as the local church, and also in culture and in society. So your first book, The Great Evangelical Recession, which I'm sure a lot of our listeners have already read or they're familiar with, uh, you argued it's actually worse than we think for the evangelical church. And I think we kind of gone there already when you're saying, you know, hey, they don't even know we're around. Like, it's just indifference, right? Uh, what were some of the findings that you outlined in that book? Yeah, so that book started as a personal research project, uh, carried the Great Evangelical Recession. You know, what happened is I went from a really liberal newsroom to a very conservative evangelical church and, you know, went from a journalist to a quote senior pastor. It was 40 people. So I was the only pastor, but um, it was a total culture shock. And as I started talking with other pastors um, who were more established, I was looking for mentors and realized this, this group think bubble exists for people who work in the news industry, as well as for people who work in, in churches. And we get kind of triple insulated, especially in ministry. We're surrounded by Christians. We listen to Christian media. We read Christian books. We have Christian friends on Facebook and we just become very insulated. So I wanted to know as a young pastor, what's the state of Christianity in North America really? And so that's where I, the Great Evangelical Recession started not as me making an argument, but me just trying to gather the data of what's the health of the church really. So the book ended up becoming a mosaic of a whole bunch of data points. So everything from Pew Research Center to Gallup to Barna to UCLA, Purdue, um, literally dozens and dozens of academic studies and sociology reports. And I, I just got this huge mosaic together to say, what's what are the trend lines amongst all this data? Because I started to notice there's good books out there from some of those researchers about their research, but no one has gone out and gotten their arms around the whole beast, if you will. Mm. And that's part of what I did as an investigative reporter toward the end of my journalism career was big stories where there's a lot of data and you've got to get your arms around all of it. And so that kind of synthesizing all that is the way my brain was used to working and the kind of thing it was used to doing. So I just started to synthesize, I mean, you know, just thousands of pages of all these different reports and these trends started to come out. And the first trend, so uh, there's six, I'll just breeze through a few. The first is that the, the true evangelical church, and of course people define it differently, you know, so there's an appendix about that in the book, but the true evangelical church is much smaller than we have been led to believe, at least than I was. You know, I, I was under the impression that about half of Americans are evangelical Christians. But really, when it comes down to Americans who believe essentials, you know, the Bible's the standard for what they believe, right. etc., and they're at all active in a Bible-believing church, it's closer to one in 10 Americans. It's a little bit less wow. than 10%. Um, so that's a huge reduction in how big of a movement we actually are. Now, it's still a big movement, still 20 mm-hmm. to 30 million people, but um, it's not nearly as big as we thought. The second is that we're losing so many of our young people. You know, multiple researchers who've found two out of three young people walking away from the faith between ages of 18 and 29. Um, this trend that we tend to think we're a bigger or more successful movement than we are because we chronically focus on a few very successful, high-profile people. You know, so we've got, you know, and I thank God for them, these handful of 
kind of headline churches and personalities that really are having a huge impact. And we tend to look at just those and think that represents what's going on for all of evangelicalism. But the reality is there's a lot of struggling small churches. There's a lot of uh, churches that are closing. Uh, The other trend is that the financial resources that actually make the movement work are um, so all the giving is coming from the top two generations. And Mm -hmm. so when I looked at the data about the generations younger than the baby boomers, as they inherit this windfall uh, of inheritances in the, in the, we're in it now, but the coming 10 to 15 years, can ministries expect to see from the kids and grandkids of their big donors as much giving? And the answer is generally no. Absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, there's the trend of cultural animosity. And I mentioned before, kind of intellectual animosity and, um, or just complete indifference to Christianity. And what we cannot underestimate, and I preach this to myself, so I just moved from the Bay Area in California, mm-hmm. where I was, you know, living next door to and ministering to engineers for Google, Apple, Facebook, Netflix, etc. Now I'm in Indianapolis. I'm in the yeah. heartland. I'm in the, you know, the, the Midwest. And the reality is for those of us who are either in full-time ministry or else in a heartland type geography or a Southern Bible Belt geography, we cannot underestimate how non-Christian the coasts, the universities, the metropolises, and the leading edges of culture truly are right now. And, and Carrie, you would get this because you live in Canada, which is, yeah. you know, um, further down this road than the United States. When I'm in California or New England, I'm flying there tomorrow, tonight actually, to New England. Uh, I feel like I'm home. It just feels like, oh yeah, nobody here follows Jesus. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's still such a huge culture shift and and understanding. Um, so my next book is called Hope of Nations. And in it, um, I do a lot more with demographics of where's all this going to lead. And a lot of the breakdown is generational. So a lot of these really post-Christian secular cultural changes are going to really start to erupt around the year 2020. And we're already seeing them. But the tipping point, some of the tipping points are being reached, but we're going to see, it's going to go beyond the tipping point. And that's, um, those are the moments when the more insulated Christians are going to start to realize, oh, wow, this is a a huge cultural revolution that is unstoppable. Why 2020? That's interesting because, I mean, you can measure that in months, right? Like we're (laughs) we're 18, 20 months away when we're recording this. So 2020 is the next presidential election. And uh, the so the the baby boomers have been the largest voting bloc in the last presidential elections. 2020, if the millennials show up, will be the first year where the millennials are the biggest voting bloc. Well, the millennials are the first and only generation in American history to prefer socialism to capitalism. The, the millennials have eradicated. So if you take from, from the last presidential election, Bernie, like Bernie Sanders, Sanders, right? Yeah, Bernie Sanders ran as an openly socialist candidate. Um, and, and not even conservative socialist, but almost Marxist socialist, okay? Bernie Sanders had more votes from millennials than Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump combined by almost double. Uh, so... So that is going to be, and so that's why I say 2020 is I'm anchoring it around the presidential election. Maybe it'll end up being 2024. But the thing is, this tipping point's coming, 
And once it comes, it's going to be irreversible and people are going to be saying, what happened? Um, why is, especially people in the heartland and people who've been very insulated are going to start to feel like Christians feel in England and Canada and New England and California. And it's, it's coming. In other words, and so what does that mean? What does it mean? Yeah, it is it, radical ideological change, radical change in assumptions, radical change in values. Um, and some are, some are for the better and some are for the worse from a biblical perspective, you know. Um, so it's not, it's, not, it's not wholesale just good or bad, but it's a completely different demographic that will be controlling the laws and the lawmakers. So, in other words, it's just secularism that's come to mainstream, right? Yes. That the value base has shifted, right? Which is something yeah. we've been dealing with in Canada. European listeners, you've been dealing with it. Australia, New Zealand, I mean, very similar thing. Um, yeah, that, that ship sailed a while ago. And so, it's, it's, it's inter- interesting that way. Um, now, I know there's, a, I imagine, I don't know, I imagine that there are a number of listeners whose blood pressure is rising as you speak and who are like, well, connect the dots. It's that liberal media, that group think. So, I mean, you're on the inside. Talk about that. What, what is, what's going on there? So, you know, in my opinion, um, yeah, I don't like to say the liberal media, even though I worked in I guess the liberal media, the liberal media. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, and y- you know what it is, it, it's ideology. Ideology is the key word. Yeah. Um, and Carrie, I've got a book coming out here in June called hope of nations and it assesses Western civilization in a similar way that I assessed the American church a few years ago in my previous book. And Hope of Nations, the research really came down to ideology um, and that ideologies are what shape nations. Ideologies are what turn the wheels of tanks. Ideologies are what move history. And what's really interesting right now, at least in America, is there's been such an emphasis in the secular classroom on um, you know, all ideas are equal. We don't want to discriminate against any idea to where a, a lot of incoming Americans might not even fully understand what ideology is, mm-hmm. uh, or if they do, may not understand how important ideologies are and what the implications are. So when we talk about, quote, the liberal media, well, having worked in that industry, these are just people who grew up in completely non-Christian families that were highly educated. And they went to some of the best universities in the country, Harvard, Yale, et cetera, and were taught by, you know, atheists and agnostic professors who were non-Christian. And they've just, they've never seen the world from a Christian lens. And they've always been living toward the top of the social spectrum and don't really see any reason why they should consider Christianity now or why it would be relevant. So I don't think, intentionally trying to be anti-Christian or bigoted against Christianity. It's just a huge blind spot for them because the world they live in, it hasn't been a factor. Well, and I think you're right. I mean, my experience has been, you know, we were in law school, my wife and I, in the 80s and 90s. 
And I mean, a lot of what is now percolated to mainstream thinking was very, well, almost universal in law school, but it was, it was an alternative way of thinking. It was a very left-leaning viewpoint. It was a very whatever. And that's just become mainstream culture. They were just ahead slash behind, etc. Um, but this is honestly the convictions of those people. They're not trying to pull one over on others. I mean, this is just how they think and how they believe. And so then the question that I would throw to you, and obviously you've, you've, you, you're, you're inside a church trying to make a, a difference and um, help people put their lives back together one person at a time in Christ. How does the church, number one, respond, number two, even thrive in a culture that's indifferent to it and that has radically different values to it? I mean, in many ways, it's I don't want to say it's an unwinnable thing, but like, you know, when we had uh, marriage equality come to Canada over a decade ago. I my inbox exploded, and I'm like, guys, I know where this is going. Like, we are we're not going to win this one. We are not we are not going to be in a place where um, the laws of the nation are necessarily going to reflect religious beliefs about sexuality. And you know, we the culture cultural ship sailed long ago on sex outside of marriage. I mean, a long, long time ago between, you know, two people who are consenting. It's like, great, go for it. Well, that's not something that I would subscribe to as a Christian. Uh, ditto with, you know, the legalization of marijuana in Canada, which is supposed to happen in 2018. Uh, that's not a personal thing for me where my habits are going to change or where I would encourage people to change, but like that cultural ship has sailed as well. So how does the church survive slash, and I would argue thrive, in that kind of culture. Yeah, so I, I'm i glad you said thrive because, you know, sometimes people uh, see the, be, get exposed to my my research work, whether it's the Great Evangelical Recession about the church or this book co- coming Hope out called Nations. Hope of Nations. Yeah. And sometimes people read the first part where the research can seem a little bleak and, and say, oh, this guy's a doomsdayist, this guy's a naysayer. Right. Uh, not at all. Upheaval is opportunity. Most of the bil- mm. most of the billionaires that I interviewed made their fortunes by understanding that upheaval is opportunity. So, for example, I interviewed a real estate tycoon in in Arizona who was worth at the time about nine hundred and fifty million. Now he's crossed the billion mark, and he has made his money by timing when the market's going to crash, and then when it crashes and everyone's selling, he buys up. He buys and buys and buys. And he waits for the whole wave to rise, and then he sells when everyone else starts buying. And he, you know, he gets it that upheaval is opportunity, and it's right. the same socially and spiritually. Uh, we can be kingdom entrepreneurs by acknowledging that upheaval in society is our greatest opportunity. And so Love when that. I when I do you know research, and it concludes that hey, it ain't, it ain't going to be comfortable to be evangelical Christian, or we just can't keep doing what we've always done and expect it to keep working like it's still the 1980s. People say, why are you a doomsdayer? Why are you a naysayer? <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, I'm not at all. I'm saying here's, here's our, great, our great opportunity. And so, you know, Carrie, you asked, you know, how can we respond um, if, if rapid cultural change continues, and especially beyond 2020, uh, if it is a cultural tipping point moment as far as millennials, socialism, a lot of other implications that will come down the pipe. For me, here's the great opportunity. 
it can force us to become more biblical. And I mean this not in a militant closed off sense, but in believing that the words of Jesus truly are the hope of nations and that the words of scripture truly do bring life and light Mm -hmm. and peace and prosperity. And so, um, you know, we will see some ministries as culture changes kind of capitulate to the culture and give up on scripture and out of good motives to love our neighbors, they'll abandon scripture and they'll end up losing the power of the message. We'll see other well-intentioned people say, well, we're going to hold to scripture. And so we're going to go around telling everyone why they're evil and sinful. Um, And I would challenge that those people are not actually being as biblical as they think they are. Because in John 1, you know, it says Jesus came full of grace and Mm -hmm. truth. And so for us to navigate the opportunities of a rapidly shifting culture, um, we need to do it full of grace and truth. And, you know, something that inspires me, Carrie, is just knowing God chose that we would be born now. You know, (laughs) we could have been born in when Gutenberg was born, or we could have been born in the third century. We could have been born on any continent, any civilization, any culture in all of history. And God chose that we'd be born right now. And he didn't do that so that we would just build bunkers. And when we see that the world's changing, we would just hide and insulate ourselves and protect ourselves. He did it so that we can shine the light now. Um, So in, in the book, Hope of Nations, after all the research, I come down to nine trends. You know, we can't predict the future. But there's nine trends we know about where the world is going, that it is post-truth, that it is post-Christian in the sense of Christianity is not a central core value to the culture. Yeah, go ahead and walk us through. Okay, so so the nine trends we'll face, and again, the way, the way this book, Hope of Nations, works is like a giant funnel. We start at the top looking at ideologies, the power of ideology uh, in Germany during World War II, um, all the way down to now using examples. And then we get to the bottom of that funnel, we get to these nine trends Uh, And it's a world that's post-Christian. It's a world that is post-truth. It's a world that's post-knowledge, a world that's post-church, a world that's post-decency. And and what that has to do with is disagreeing with your opponent in a respectful way, Mm. a world that is post-human. And that has to do with robotics and technological innovation, but it also has to do with the Western view of human dignity. It will be, I believe, a world that is Um, post-prosperity, hopefully not too soon, (laughs) but uh, a world that is post-liberty, as some people have known it, and a world that is post-peace. That that does sound a little uh, depressing, (laughs) I got to be honest with you, John. So here's the the upside, the opportunity is for every one of those is an opportunity. So for example, we will remain, I I give these nine manifestos in the book. So in a world where truth is feeling-based, that's a Mm post-truth world, what's our opportunity? We will remain rooted to the Christian scriptures in their life-giving direction. So we have an opportunity. Uh, Here's another one. In a society of educated ignorance, it's a post-truth world where sometimes people get a degree in history and they don't actually know much history. (laughs) Um, In a society of educated ignorance, we will train our young in the freedom, knowledge, and power of Christian truth. Um, here's one in a world where Christians are labeled as bigots and backward, we will be known for doing good, serving the least of these and loving our neighbors. Why? Well, cause that's, that's what God tells us in the book of first Peter, you know, live such good lives 
among the pagans, that even though they accuse you of doing wrong, they'll see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Um, we'll dignify all people as image bearers of God. In a world where people are treated as commodities or as opponents, we will dignify all people as image bearers of God's. That's so helpful. I mean, is it a little bit like we talk about that with our team around here? It's like, welcome to the first century. Mm-hmm. Is it a bit like that? I, I think it's going to be. I think it, it is on the coasts, and I think it's going to be increasingly. And it is for our kids. Yeah. Whether we realize it or not, it is for our kids. And so where I'm really thankful for the Word of God is we have this timeless direction of how to live like Christians now. So, you know, here's another one of these. We will be ambassadors. In a post-Christian world, we will be ambassadors to foreign tribes, behaving diplomatically toward neighbors who've been told the worst about Christianity. Right. So, you know, it's a, it's a paradigm shift, especially for the conservative and Bible-based Christian to say, because I'm committed to the Word of God, I have to love my enemies. And because mm. I'm committed to the Word of God, I have to be a diplomatic ambassador to my Muslim neighbor, to my LGBTQ neighbor, to the very people who I'm afraid of or don't like me because I'm a Christian. I can't just tolerate them. I can't just put up with them. I can't just hide from them. If I truly hold to the Word of God and what it says about why I'm here on earth, I am an ambassador and I am called to show God's love to that person in undeniable actions. Wow. That's that's challenging and that's convicting. And I mean, personally, I, I see so much hope there. I'm not sure everybody will hear it that way when uh, the culture used to used to be one way and now it's another way. On the whole post-truth thing, I mean, mm-hmm. in, in, again, academic circles, in more liberal circles, the truth is relative, dates back, well, you could argue into deconstructionism in the mid-20th century and even before that into the 19th century where mm-hmm. you have your truth, I have my truth. Um, but now we're in a post-truth, post-fact world. I heard uh, David Letterman interview Barack Obama, and Obama was reflecting on um, you know, a comment, I forget who, I think it was a former U.S. Secretary of State made. It wasn't Kissinger, it was someone else, I think. And the comment was, everybody's entitled to their opinion, but nobody is entitled to their own facts. And I see us moving in the last few years as a place where people feel entitled to their own facts. Like, that never happened, or that did happen, or this happened this way, or this is my... How do Christians who claim truth have dialogue in that kind of an environment? <laughs> That's a, that is a great that is a great question. I, I think us acknowledging that head on is that's our biggest philosophical challenge. That's our foundational challenge mm-hmm. is bringing the power of God into a post-truth environment. And so what won't work is us arguing from a truth-based mentality of logic and facts, because those are all subjective. And so give, give us an example, like what won't work in that? Well, so for example, our, our traditional apologetic approach, our intellectual approach of, hey, here's, um, you know, here, here are these facts about, you know, the evidence 
about So the Bible Jesus is the and, most widely attested right. ancient manuscript in history, right. more than Homer's Iliad, more than, um, you know, blah, 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 blah. Uh, therefore, because it's multiply attested, we believe that the scriptures, as they are presented to us, are accurate to 98, 99.9% of what was originally written. Therefore, the Bible is true. Right. All of that works until the last sentence, right? Yeah. Yep. In the last sentence, therefore, the Bible is true. Okay, great. You have an accurate document. So what? That's is right. that the yeah. new reality? Yeah, in a post-truth world, actions are going to speak a lot louder than words, which is really interesting because God says over and over in the New Testament, um, by their works you'll know them. And he says, yeah. you know, live such good lives among the pagans. And it's doing good. It's undeniable actions that will get the attention of our neighbors. Now, the good, the good deeds should be followed by the good news. Uh, But very often, you know, we have a tendency as Christians to do one or the other. We either do a whole bunch of good deeds and never share the good news, or we're out there shouting the good news and there's no good deeds to validate that it Mm. is credible. Um, But, you know, I see in the New Testament a balance of both. And a post-truth culture forces us to show God's love through actions. Wow. Let's uh, let's move forward a little bit. Past 2020, 2024, move to a decade from now, 15 years from now. Um, one of the things Ravi Zacharias said, and he's guested on this podcast a couple of times, um, but that really stuck with me is, America seems to be increasingly hostile slash indifferent to the gospel. But when he goes into like Eastern Europe, or even a little bit into Western Europe, um, he sees a renewed hunger for the gospel because their parents and grandparents rejected it, but the kids are curious. Mm-hmm. And the kids the kids have never known it, so they're open. And I mean, he's packing out stadiums with tens of thousands, with thousands of mm-hmm. young adults who are hungry for the gospel. And I don't know, I think it's too early to say, but I think in Canada, I wonder if we're beginning to see that mm-hmm. where the the hostility is dying off, literally as we speak, and the the indifference is giving way to a curiosity and even a respect of like, okay, well, if all beliefs are equal and you're like into this Christian thing, tell me more about the Christian thing. I'm curious. And I've not seen that um, widespread, but is that where this goes if you extrapolate a little bit further? If we handle it well and don't alienate everybody by being, frankly, jerks about it. Yeah, I think our big challenge, especially in the United States, is that Bible-believing Christianity is so associated with politics and so conflated with politics, and right now it's really associated with a lot of political positions that the incoming generations view as backward and bigoted. And so I think what you described in Eastern Europe, in parts of Western Europe, and hopefully emerging in Canada is a blank slate because Christianity has been so forgotten that now there's a blank slate. I think in the U.S., that's probably 40, I I don't know. Maybe 40 years away. Yeah. yeah, We are moving into post-post-Christian. Right. Whereas we are just in the U.S. at the tipping point of it actually becoming post-Christian. So uh, now, Carrie, I love it that you mentioned the upcoming years, because in my research on this book, Hope of Nations, that was some of the most shocking data to me. So, Tell me more. Okay, here's, 
I can't predict the future, but I'm going to try here. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Here's, here's two trajectories that are, are pretty much unstoppable right now that will shape the next 30 years. The first is there is an ideological civil war happening within the United States between truth-based thinkers and post-truth thinkers. And it splits down almost generationally. And essentially, once the baby boomers are gone, there will not be many more truth-based thinkers in the U.S. There'll be some, but there'll be a, a very small, uninfluential minority, okay? All that's gonna be happening in the U.S. And as a result, you get all this turmoil and conflict and division and social upheaval that will be happening within the U.S. And we tend to, Americans, think mostly about that. But meanwhile, beyond North America, way bigger things are going to be happening. Uh, And that includes the reordering of the global economies. So if you go Mm. back to the year 2000, you know, global economies were number one, the US, number two, the United Kingdom, number three, Japan, all the post-World War II order of the allies, well, other than Japan, anyhow. Okay, so... the way it is going to be by 2030, we all know China's number two right now. They're about to become number one. By 2030, it'll be China number one, U.S. number two. By 2050, it's going to be China number one, India number two, mm-hmm. the United States number three, and Indonesia number four. Now, if you, if you look at the world through the lens of ideology, that is radical because China Okay, what we have right now in North America is what I call a soft ideology. It's very passive. Mm. The post-truth ideology, the idea of your idea is your idea, my, you know, your truth is your truth, just like the new Coca-Cola commercials, you know, you be you. It's very passive. Yeah. What we don't understand is that historically, that's an anomaly. Most large civilizations have what I call a muscular or a rigid ideology that is not forgiving and kind to people who disagree with it. And that's just human history. You know, if you if you didn't like the Roman way, you weren't going to last very long in Rome. If you didn't like the Soviet Union way, you weren't going to last very long. That's the norm in human history. We in the in the West have gotten very soft because we have grown up under this passive, very accepting ideology. What we don't understand about the rising world economies is they are not passive ideologically. China's form of of communism is a new expression of communism, but it's still Marxist and it's still an authoritarian state at its core. And it will become the number one economy and the number one military in the next 10 years. And it's not passive. They're not training their kids in their schools of, hey, um, this is what we believe, but people in other countries believe this and maybe they're right. You know, it's Mm. this is what we believe. This is what's right. And so we deserve to be in charge. Well, the same thing's happening in all the Islamic countries. And here, here's the, one of the biggest findings when you look at the next 30 years. So if you take the population of the United States and Russia, add every, everyone in the U.S., you can throw Canada in there too. Mm-hmm. U.S., Canada, and Russia, all those people, that's about 550 million people. That many new Muslims and Christians are born every five years. Wow. Every five years between now and 2050, that many new Muslims and Christians are born. Now, Christianity is is not really growing or decreasing globally. It's growing at the rate of births. Uh, so in other words, as population increases by about 30%, Christianity will hold steady. Islam is already increasing at 76%. 
Islam is the fastest growing ideology in the world. So what's going to happen in the next 30 years is first, China is going to rise to be the number one, the whole global axis of economies, military, um, who people trade with, what currency they use is going to shift from the West to the East. Because China will be number one, then India will be number two. India is also a rigid ideology mm-hmm. with Hindu. Uh, the vast majority of people in India are Hindu. And just like I described in China, as those kids are being taught in their schools right now, it's not, we believe Hindu, but the Christians are good people. Mm-hmm. The Muslims are good people. It's, we believe Hindu and Hindu is superior. And here's why. And here's why we don't let people in our community be anything else. Well, what's the number four economy going to be? Indonesia. It's muscularly rigid Muslim. And Indonesia is really just one fraction of the rise of Islam in what will become increasingly sophisticated, wealthy governments like Turkey and Pakistan and Iran. And so we're going to be living in a world while Westerners are squabbling internally about things like gun control and various groups' rights and everyone thinking the world ends at the borders of North America. While we're having all these little internal debates and struggles, globally, the world is going to be changing dramatically. And there will come a time where there are implications from the new world order. So you've depressed 99% (laughs) of all the leaders listening at this point. Um, did you call your book The Hope of Nations? And just just trying to get us back there. Um, I mean, I'm sure people are asking, like, is this irreversible? Is this inevitable? What does this mean? What are your thoughts? Yeah. So, you know, Carrie, I alluded to it before. Cultural upheaval is opportunity. There and you go. Let's go there. Here's what I saw. You know, let's talk about it in marketplace terms because everyone likes money and understands money. The, the, the people who make a fortune off of upheaval in the stock market or the real estate market are the people who understand it. Yes. And because they see what's coming, they're able to sell at the right time, buy at the right time. Well, our, we are entrepreneurs for a greater kingdom and a greater purpose. And really anyone listening to this, no matter what industry you're in, if you understand where the world's going, you can adapt your strategy to, to be far more successful. So I, I believe for kingdom entrepreneurs, the upheaval and society and culture is, is a massive opportunity. And without just saying, go buy the book, Hope of Nations, mm. <laughs> but the book Hope of Nations takes this pivot it, it, about two thirds of the way in. Once Um, And it's so hard for me to even summarize all the data and how compelling it is of the world is really going to change in the next 30 years. And we can either bury our heads in the sand and be a blockbuster video that goes out of business because we pretend it's not going to change or we can be Netflix. I want to be Netflix. I want my ministry to be Netflix. I want to do for the kingdom of God what Netflix did for video rental. And um, how do we respond to what's changing? Well, it's going to be a little different for everyone who's listening. For someone who's a pastor in the Bay Area of California, where I just came from, it's probably a little different than someone who's in Indiana. For someone who's a Christian business leader listening to this, it's different. But um, the, the implications are universal. The timeline and the applications are going to be a little different for each of us. But ultimately, Carrie, what excites me is this creates some urgency. You know, we are the wealthiest church in world history. 
the North American church, not just the North American church, just the oldest two generations of the North American right. church are the wealthiest church in world history. But if you look at global Christianity right now, we're the only continent where Christianity is decreasing as a percentage of the population. Right. So our problem is not that we don't have enough money. Our problem is we don't have enough urgency. We don't have enough clarity mm. about our mission. True. And whether we like it or not, as things get, as change creates discomfort, it will result in some urgency. Now we can either get ahead of that curve and have the discipline to create our own urgency before it is before the crisis is here, um, or we can sit around and and just you know live out the American dream and hope that the crisis just hits our kids and grandkids instead of us. What are you doing at your church? That's different as a result of all this. Knowing all this, how are you leading differently or going to lead differently? Yeah, great question. So, you know, one thing is within our values, we're implementing these nine manifest these nine manifestos. And I'm not summarizing it very well, but for anyone who's listening and, and wants these nine manifestos, you can get a free PDF of them at johnsdickerson.com. Um, so, for example, we will remain rooted to the Christian scriptures. We will train our young. We will be known for doing good. We will dignify all people as image bearers of God. We will be ambassadors. We will love our persecutors. We will remain calm. <laughs> mm. um, we are embedding those into our, our thinking early on so that as the world changes around us, we already know here's what Scripture says to do in a shaking world. Uh, to remain rooted to scriptures, to train up our young and actually disciple them uh, with intentionality, to be known for do doing good. Whether we're hated, whether we're loved, whether we're persecuted, whether people are indifferent to us, we're to be known for doing good. Um, uh, other things, and I'm early in my role, so it's it's too early to, yeah. to say exactly what we're going to do in the next five years. But as we are praying about our five-year vision, um, we're definitely factoring in um, where it looks like the world is going into our our potential options of how will we reach more people in the future? How will we disciple and care for the people we've already got? And how will we reach more people? So, John, I just want to wrap up. And I know, you know, thinking ahead here, I have a church, right? A lot of people listening here were part of a church. Tell us one or two things we could do that today position us for the future? Yeah, Carrie, th that's a great question. And I'd point to these nine manifestos that are in the book, Hope of Nations. Um, I'm just going to point to the first two. And the first one is we will remain rooted to the Christian scriptures. Now, for a lot of people listening, that's a given. That's an assumption. Right. But here's what I want to challenge you on. If you really understand the post-truth cultural shift, Mm -hmm. and how pervasive it is. Here's what's going to start happening on boards of churches and universities before we know it. There's going to be a board member who gets selected because they had a radical Jesus moment. They've had genuine life transformation. They genuinely love Jesus and love others, but they've never been discipled from a truth-based ideology that mm -hmm. the scripture's the standard for what we do and believe. And so they get selected onto a board because of their incredible life change and they're an incredible Christian. But was it really validated and certified that this person is committed to the authority of scriptures, the standard for what we do and believe? Mm -hmm. We're going to start to see boards where unintentionally a vote comes up and 
seven of the board members realize that six of the board members don't hold the scriptural authority when it comes to an issue that's culturally divisive. And they're all good people and they all love Jesus, but because it's a post-truth world where most young Americans are taught in post-truth classrooms, even Christians who love Jesus aren't viewing the word of God from a truth-based reality. So that's just one application on just one of the nine manifestos. Okay. Uh, Loving your neighbor. Let's let's just wrap up on that, okay? Because a lot of people scream at their neighbor. A lot of people disagree with their neighbor. A lot of people try to shame their neighbor. A lot of people express outrage at their neighbor. A lot of people wish their neighbor would go away because they wish what was happening wasn't happening. How do you love your neighbor? Yeah, so we have to, for one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's not an option. And, you know, what's funny to me is... Um, in Christian ministry, there's there's certain things that that Christians think. Well, you know, we sexual immorality, etc. Those are like those are the hard lines. You can't cross those. But Jesus just outright said, "Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you." Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just as direct. And Romans twelve also says it: "Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you." I mean, it's it is it. The first step is acknowledging that it's not optional. So if I am not loving my neighbor, I have to figure out. And for me, that usually starts in my heart. When I have a neighbor, and I think of some of my former coworkers who really came at me when I was in the journalism industry, it had to start in my heart of God, based on what they've said about me, done to me, tried to set me up to fail, I do not feel any love in my heart for that person. So it's got to start at the heart level. God, will you give me your love for this person. And then right. how does love show in actions? So if that person loves a caramel macchiato from Starbucks, I'm going to bring them a caramel macchiato from Starbucks once a week. And I'm going to pray as I'm walking it into their office, God, I don't feel love for this person, but you've called me to love this person. Help me give them this drink in love. That's good. That's really practical. So what you're saying is Democrats need to start praying for Republicans. Republicans need to start praying for Democrats. Christians need to start praying for Muslims. Um, I mean, we need to get to the point where we are for the people that we disagree with and we love them at a sacrificial level. And we give our lives. We don't demand theirs. Amen. Yeah. And that's, you know, one of these manifestos is called We Will Be Ambassadors. And the idea is, each of these are a chapter in the book, Hope of Nations, by the way, but We Will Be Ambassadors is about realizing these people who are far from Christ, even the people who wake up in the morning and set out to kill Christians, people who outright hate Christians, they are not our enemies. They are slaves to Satan. They're slaves to our actual enemy. And just like in World War II, when the allies came to those concentration camps, they liberated the, the people who were held in slavery by the actual enemy. We've got to realize that humans, other humans are never our enemy. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Our warfare is in the spiritual realm, and we're here to set captives free. And very often it's the person who's the most hostile toward us that is the person we're called to set free. Well, John, this has been a uh, rich and wide-ranging conversation. Uh, Tell people where they can get the book and where they can find you online. 
So you can find the book Hope of Nations anywhere books are sold. It's Zondervan published, so it's anywhere books are sold. But if you go to johnsdickerson.com, I've got the nine manifestos there as a free giveaway. We've got lots of other free videos and other giveaways. So it's John with an S like Sam, johnsdickerson.com. Cool. John, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Carrie. Real privilege to be with you. I always love it when somebody takes the skills they developed in the marketplace and they use them in ministry. I just think that is amazing and it makes us all richer. So John, thanks for your insights. Uh, if you want more, you can go to the show notes at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 199. You'll find everything there. And uh, man, I got to tell you, I am super excited about everything that's happening in the next little while. Next week, we have episode number 200. And so we are going to be giving away free coffee every day, all week, mostly Starbucks, a little bit of Dunkin' Donuts for those of you who don't have a Starbucks nearby. How can you win? Well, you can get ready right now. Uh, honestly, go to the show notes or just find me on, on social. Okay. So all the links are in the show notes, but what you can do just on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook is head on over there and follow me now and then turn on notifications because what'll happen is you'll be near a Starbucks and starting next Tuesday, we will post a card that will get you a free Starbucks. And if you're in the right place at the right time, voila, a free drink. So uh, what you can do, Instagram, it's my full name, Carrie Newhoff. On Twitter and Facebook, it's just initial C, Newhoff, C Newhoff. So Anyway, you'll find me on the Twitters, on um, Facebook, and also on Instagram. We're going to be randomly posting free gift cards uh, for all of our listeners. And hopefully you win. We're giving away a lot. So mostly Starbucks, a little bit of Dunkin' Donuts. That starts next Tuesday when we're back with Josh Gagnon. And Josh has been on this podcast before. He is doing an incredible job in New England. Their church is almost a decade old their church is almost a decade old and uh, they've got over 10 locations and they're moving into Florida. And well, Josh and I sat down actually at Next Level Church and had this conversation in person. Here's an excerpt. And so as a, as a leader, I've actually had to recommit to our vision several times to our staff because I've even found that even though we've seen God do incredible things at Next Level Church, I've found that that I'll go into a new location launch believing for less than I once once did. Hmm. And I'll, it'll simply be because we now have a new statistic that proves a location is going to launch around this size. And now statistics form our faith rather than our belief in a God who can do the impossible. However, I do think statistics are wise and experience can, can be a great asset and a great gift to a leader as long as your experience doesn't create a box for you never to believe outside of it. I think we have to leave room for God to move and so, yeah, looking back, you know, I, I look back and smile because, man, I was, I was ignorant. You know, great leader once told me that, that we're going to overvalue what God can do in the immediate and we're going to underestimate what God can do in a lifetime of faithfulness. So that's happening next weekend. Also, I uh, want you to head on over and check out trainedup.church. I mean, you are training your volunteers, so you might as well do it well. Get up to 100% of them trained. Uh, use the promo code CARRY, the coupon code CARRY, C-A-R-E-Y. You get 10% off for life. Head over to trainedup.church. Make sure you check them out. They've been a great partner to this podcast. Also, next week, we're so excited. I am going to be doing my book launch team. So uh, I have a book coming out in September. And many of you have said, how can I get in 
on your book launch? Well, we're going to share that with you next week. So, uh, well, actually, because you listened to the end, you want to you head over there now? I'll, I'll tell you how to get there. If you're really interested in this, this is what you should do. You should go to my website, kerryneuhoff.com, and then you'll see a little tab at the top that says, didn't see it coming. And then you'll see, if you click on that, join the launch team. Yeah, that's what you need to do. Fill out that form. We'll be in touch. You'll get a free copy, advanced reader copy of my brand new book, Didn't See It Coming, which releases in September, September 4th. And uh, well, I guess I just let the cat out of the bag. So you can go over there now and start filling that out. In fact, we'll link to that in the show notes too. Thank you so much, everybody. We are so excited to be back next week with a fresh episode. It is bonus week. So you're going to get a couple, I think maybe three episodes next week as we pour more and more into this platform. And we're going to celebrate you all week long with our 200th episode giveaway. So thanks so much for listening, everybody. I really do hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.